Blog Talk Radio. get tired. Love to play that song by Jerry Goldberg, Once Upon a Long Time Ago. And 
Uh, got a big hello to some of the 50 countries around the world that listened to us, and they are last week. Uh, those that uh, had tuned us in via satellite, Norway, the Netherlands, United Kingdom, Ireland, Germany, Latvia, Russia, Romania, Croatia, Austria, Switzerland, France, Spain, Portugal, Kenya, United Republic of Tanzania, Brazil, Argentina, Chile, Chile, I guess it's pronounced, Dominican Republic, Mexico, Canada, 23 nations around the world, all listening to the radio show, and most do it every week. Wow, what an impressive audience that we have. You know, uh, we've changed our broadcast uh, schedule. We've been doing it now for the last two shows uh, here Saturday at 1 p.m. I think it's a better time than what we were doing it on Monday uh, at the same time. So uh, we'll get used to this, hopefully, and we'll stick to it. Uh, since we have listeners from several major airline retirees and active employees here in the U.S. and around the world, we thought it would be good to check in with these retirees and their airlines for the latest news, history, and their great stories and memories. And we've been on the air now for 11 years, and our microphones are always open to all friends of aviation. And we are especially happy today that uh, Brenda got in touch with us uh, with a remarkable young man that I guess we were all young at one time, Eduardo, but we're happy to have as our guest, Eduardo Valenciana. Now, if I pronounce your name wrong, please let me know. But, but uh, welcome to our, uh, to our radio show, Eddie, as you well, don't th- mind. Thank you very much, Captain Neil, and aloha from the beautiful Garden Island of Kauai. Wonderful. <laughs> and uh, Eddie was a former flight attendant with Western Airlines, and we're going to hear uh, Eddie's story in just a few minutes. And as the surviving flight attendant aboard uh, Western Airlines Flight 2605, uh, Eddie participated in an in-depth investigation by ABC News 2020, along with uh, World Airline Captain Ralph Baxter. And what happened to Flight 2605 that was aired nationwide on January 15, 1988? And again, Eddie, thank you for being with us today. And I'm going to turn the uh, the first uh, questionings and uh, introduction, if you would, to Brenda Chavot, a former flight attendant with Canadian Airline, Ward Air. And uh, Brenda is also the editor of the great magazine, The Silver Liners, and does a wonderful job. And we invite everyone to join that organization. And uh, she perhaps will tell us uh, during the show how to go about uh, signing up for a wonderful association receiving that great magazine that Brenda turns out so brilliantly. Brenda is the author of her own great book, Flight Attendants Lost in the Line of Duty. Brenda, say hello to Eddie and uh, and then we'll get Eddie talking about uh, what Eddie's going to tell us about uh, Flight 2605. Excuse me. Brenda, it's all yours. Thank you, Neil. And uh, hello to everybody and everybody listening. And hello, Eddie. So I met Eddie through reading Eddie's book, which is called Jump Seat, A Tale of Twisted Fate by Eduardo Valenciana. Uh, The book really moved me. Um, My book dealt with 
flight attendants losing their lives in the line of duty. They go to work one day, they do their best, and they lose their life. Um, and those who survive with PTSD and or, well, they're forever changed when you lose a crew member. Anyway, this book, after having been a flight attendant and wrote that book, this book moved me like no other book I'd read. It was just amazing. So long story short, I uh, posted that on Facebook on the different um, flight attendant groups that I belong to. And a lady that I don't know, I don't remember her name, but she must know you, Eddie, and she tagged you so you'd be aware of that post. And through that, you, I guess, messaged me, and then I messaged you, and here we are. <laughs> so yes, I'm so glad. Yeah, yep, that's, been a so there is something that. There's something good about Facebook. <laughs> but, but anyway, Eddie, really, um, I'd just like you to tell whatever you wish to tell. From a flight attendant perspective, I think one of the things that moved me most was you captured, of course, because you lived, the camaraderie, the, the subliminal connection that flight attendants have between each other and with that aircraft itself. No one can really ever understand that is sort of our home and it's a big shiny beast and we just all are so proud of our airline and that aircraft. So with capturing that and the flight attendant aspect, you go ahead, Eddie, if you don't mind, and I'll keep quiet now. <laughs> well, Eddie, Mahalo. before you before you start your your talk, I want to introduce you to some folks that uh, will be questioning you, or perhaps they've got a question of their own that uh, they want to ask you. We've got George Jen, who lives up in New York, uh, New York, Long Island area. Hello, George. Say hello to uh, Eddie. Yeah. Hi, Neil. Hello, Eddie. How are you? Uh, aloha, George. And we've got uh, uh, over in Miami area, Mark Porter. He's down in Miami. Hello, Mark, and hello to uh, Eddie. I guess Mark's there. Uh, aloha, Mark. <laughs> <laughs> all right. We got the aloha out of the way. Eddie, it's all yours. Please do tell us Mark, your story. And again, let me say that I'm very honored and uh, I'm humbled by your invitation to uh, participate today in this. Uh, even though it's been quite a few years, I think it's very important, especially in today's culture of aviation. But as, uh, as Brenda men mentioned, I was a flight attendant with Western Airlines, and uh, I was a crew member aboard Western Airlines DC-10 Flight 2605, uh, which was, uh, I was working uh, uh, the DC-10 flight Los Angeles to Mexico City. And uh, the, short, the short version of this is that uh, basically uh, Mexican air traffic control directed our flight for landing onto a closed runway. The captain, which was uh, Captain Charles Gilbert Sr., uh, one of Western Airlines' top, who was also a safety pilot. He taught emergency procedures to other pilots. He recognized the situation eight seconds before touchdown and initiated a missed approach. 
so we touched down and immediately went back in the air. But they never told him that there were dump trucks on the runway. And on the way up, we hit the first dump truck with our right landing gear, took it clean off, uh, went back into the air, and uh, we also had severed some of the hydraulic lines and we damaged the horizontal stabilizer. Captain Gilbert uh, bought full throttle in trying to get us up, get us out of there. Uh, our, uh, our aircraft banked and we plowed into two buildings in a neighborhood at approximately 280 miles an hour. Uh, initially, 13 people came out of it, uh, but within a short period of time, there was only five of us left. Because I was the flight attendant, I was later abducted from the hospital by the Mexican Federal Police, and they uh, they tried to force me to sign an affidavit which stated that I had served liquor to the pilots during the flight. And uh, when I refused to do it, uh, they they got nasty. They got nasty. And uh, once I finally got released and I got back to Los Angeles where I was based, I discovered I was the main witness in a $351 million lawsuit involving the Mexican government. My home got ransacked. And I told myself that if someone perceived me to be a liability, then uh, there was a good chance my body's going to wash up on the beach. I got to get out of here. And uh, I didn't know where to go, but a friend of mine said, if you uh, if you want to disappear, you ought to go to the Napali coast of the island of Kauai. And that's exactly where I went. Uh, I arrived here uh, six days after the incident. And for most of the time, for the last 43 years, this has been my home. And for those of you who have visited our beautiful island, you can hear the roosters in the background. Uh, <laughs> our, beautiful, our beautiful kawaii chickens that we have here. Now, another uh, uh, strange incident that occurred in relation to the accident, which, of course, affected me greatly, uh, as Brenda was speaking about the PTSD, is this incident happened on Halloween, which in Mexico City is part of the three-day festivities of El Día de los Muertos, Day of the Dead. So when I was digging out of the burning rubble, the first three people I saw running by were a werewolf, a witch, and a goblin. When I stood up on the tarmac, there were skeletons, devils, demons, all in shock and all going crazy. You know, they were all dressed for the parades that go through the city, and they saw this whole thing happen and just uh, came running onto the, uh, onto the airport field. And this was the, uh, the backdrop of everything that was happening on, on that day. So uh, basically what my book covers is the nine-year period from uh, training to, with Western and uh, – uh, again, as Brenda mentioned, my camaraderie with my crew, my members, uh, you know, there's a, there's a thing. Once a flight attendant, always a flight attendant. And uh, you, uh, you, it's, it's important that uh, that is such a strong foundation for, for us 
And also, you know, people have always questioned or, you know, what is the exact job of a flight attendant and uh, this and that they have their opinions. In my journey, I think I've come up with uh, a definition that I like to relate to, and I think it's true of all flight attendants, uh, especially today, and that is a flight attendant is the strength that is provided so that others might live. That's what a flight attendant is. So uh, this is uh, again to to make uh, going back to my to my journey as far as the accident is concerned. Uh, under agreements, aviation agreements, it's the host country that does the official investigation, and so the official Mexican report uh, determined early on that it was. Pilot error, and uh, unfortunately, uh, the official report is is subpar of what a a, a crash investigation should be, and uh, there's political opinions that got involved. Uh, you're dealing with politics. You're dealing with big governments, corporations. In fact, the uh, no U.S. investigator was ever allowed onto the crash site, uh, and the official report was so disturbing that ALPA uh, determined that they had to make their own report. And this came out, I believe, in 1981. And, uh, this was authored by Captain Ralph Baxter, whom you mentioned. Uh, and I'm going to read uh, just... Uh, the first page of synopsis, the synopsis of this investigation by ALPA, and it's very important. Uh, it says, because investigators were withheld from making a complete and thorough examination of the aircraft, wreckage, crash site, and airport facilities, it will never be accurately determined to what extent the aircraft or the approach facilities contributed to this disaster. And uh, as my book mentions, this was done intentionally by the Mexican government because right from the start, they had determined no matter what facts or evidence that would be revealed, it was going to be pilot error. And uh, this was done so that U.S.-Mexican relations, airline-Mexican relations uh, wouldn't be disturbed. And you know, I lost uh, I lost ten crew members on that flight, and uh, it uh, it stuck in my throat for a long time about uh, the the bad deal that they got and their families got, and that was also inspiration and motivation for uh, not only healing but making sure that uh, the truth of, of what occurred came out. So that's uh, that's basically uh, uh, my story in a nutshell as far as uh, what uh, what I endured. Of course, the book, Jump Seat, A Tale of Twisted Fate, you can get it on Amazon or you can go to it, uh, the website, jumpseat2605.com. Jumpseat, one word, 2605.com. And I appreciate all the support I've received. I have since the book was released. Um, now, people have asked me, why did I wait so long to release the book? I was on my journey of healing. That's number one. But number two, you, uh, you know, you, 
it's a delicate tightrope situation when all the information about a major airline crash is coming from the flight attendant, not the NTSB, not uh, not uh, accredited aviators. Uh, this is coming from the flight attendant. So I uh, I wanted to make sure that uh, my information information was correct. And uh, again, you know, also as a remembrance to my crew, uh, uh, also. And one other aspect I'd like to mention, as far as flight attendant is concerned, is you know one major major reason why I'm here today talking to you is because uh, I was prepared, I was trained, and I uh, appreciate the dedication that the flight attendant training department of my airline gave to me. Because when uh, this situation arose, I uh, it all came back. All the training came back, and uh, it played a big part in in the fact that I uh, was able to survive. Not only that, able to to help an, another crew member who survived the, with me, help to to assist him out of the the, the rubble. So uh, I'm grateful. Always be grateful to my uh, to my uh, trainers and instructors uh, of the airline. That's, that's wonderful. That's it at this point. <laughs> well, Eddie, can I ask you, um, so many people say after any incident, being a car accident, anything, fall down the stairs, um, you don't remember a lot. Is that the case with you? You were 4R, facing aft, right? No. I'm, I'm completely the opposite. I remember everything, every little detail, I could bring it back in my mind instantly at any time and see it clearly. And uh, I can even smell it. I can still, I can smell the jet fuel. And, you know, this is over 40 years now. And uh, I remember everything. Were you aware there was fog Um, outside? Okay. What occurred is, and this is an interesting aspect with the fog, because it goes into uh, the misinformation that was distributed by uh, by the Mexican Tower. Uh, in in uh, at that time in Mexico City Airport, the instrumentation for the weather uh, was a mile and a half away from the tower. So not only is it uh, reading uh, wrong information as, from the distance. But it takes time for someone over there to get the information and then get uh, get it to the. And the way Mexico City is, you've got that uh, uh, the dried uh, bed, uh, lake bed, and uh, that fog comes rolling in. And uh, so, unfortunately for us, the uh, the tower uh, told uh, told the co- cockpit crew related to the cockpit crew that there was a mile and a half vis- visibility. And in reality, there was zero visibility. And uh, as soon as we touched down on the runway, it became clear that we were in a fog, in a mist. And then we took off immediately again, and that's when, you know, bam, we hit the, we hit the truck. And as I oh. looked out the windows, I could see the, the lights of our aircraft being reflected back into the cabin. So at that point, I was very aware 
that we were in a deep uh, fog. And uh, I'm okay. sure it was a surprise also to the captain because uh, uh, he uh, uh, he uh, relates to the tower that, uh, you know, the tower asked him, can you see the runway? And he says, not in all this. And uh, so that was the first time uh, that the cockpit crew was aware that there was zero visibility also. Wow. Um, yeah. Eddie, uh, I've, I forgot to mention that uh, Jim Holder, who's uh, co-host with me during the uh, broadcast, most of our broadcast, I failed to mention that he's with us today also. And, Jim, you probably have some questions uh, for Eddie. And I'm going to ask one question that uh, I think maybe you've touched on, but they were using 2-3 left I believe, Eddie, as a navigational uh, means to get to the runway. Uh, was that correct because the active runway was 2-3 right and it had no nav aids? Well, that is true. It had no nav aids. That's true. But the question of whether 2-3 left was being used for navigational purposes only arose after the crash happened. There's absolutely nothing in the CVR recording, uh, and I do have the CVR record. I got. I must be the only airline survivor or air, aircraft survivor that has had the CVR recording for the last 40 years. Wow. I would venture to say that no one on this earth has listened to that CVR recording more than I. Now, I am not a trained aviator, uh, nor nor do I claim to be. Uh, I am very grateful to Captain Ralph Baxter, who basically gave me uh, an education and guided me as I was, as I spent uh, long periods of time listening to the CVR recording. And I will tell you that. Uh, the end of that CVR recording is not pretty. It's ugly. And, mm-hmm. uh, and, and every time I had to listen to it, it took a chunk of my soul with me, but it was the only way I was going to learn the truth of it. Mm-hmm. Now, as far as uh, back to the question of navigation, that only came up later when the Mexicans themselves first initiated the discussion that the crew was uh, using it only for navigation purposes, and they should have done a sidestep to 23 right, which, quote, was then the active runway. Prior to the accident, there is no mention of any of this whatsoever, Mm. okay? And uh, uh, another interesting fact is that Mexicana, who themselves uh, flew a daily Los Angeles to Mexico City flight, landed on 2-3 left just 18 minutes prior to our arrival. So that runway, 2-3 left, was active up until, quote, 18 minutes prior at no point was there any information related that then 2-3 left was going to be used 
solely for navigation and that there should have been a sidestep maneuver on 2-3 right. Again, this was brought up by the Mexicans because it bolstered their argument that this was pilot error. Yeah. Now, Eddie, if I could ask a question there. Um, on 23 left, the vehicle that was hit by your, the landing gear, uh, wasn't there a person in that vehicle? Yes, there was a gentleman who had parked his car. Once, once Mexicana had landed, and then yeah. someone, someone determined we were going to close that runway, which, of course, yeah. Uh, did not uh, did not give the information correctly to to others. That vehicle went on the runway. The gentleman parked it, and he fell asleep in, the, in oh. inside of it. Oh, so he was uh, actually yeah. taking a little nap when uh, when we hit when we hit the truck. So he was mm. yes, he was a casualty of the uh, of of the incident. God. George, Jim, anyone else uh, have comments to? Uh, well, yeah. yes, Neil. I'm sure Jim does. <laughs> I do also. Um, I have some questions um, of Eddie. First of all, if the um, visibility was zero, okay, wouldn't the even uh, shooting an ILS approach to two three left would have meant that the aircraft had to descend below the uh, minimums for that runway in order to try to land? But if the visibility was zero. Why wouldn't they have made a missed approach at the decision height? Because the 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 fog was in patches. It was there were areas by which it was creeping in from the the lake bed, and mm-hmm. you you know once I was uh, once we crashed and I was able to dig out of the rubble, you could see areas where it was literally zero visibility but yet if you walked maybe 30 40 yards in one direction then you were completely in the clear so it is my opinion that that fog didn't really reach two three left until right about the time we were we were coming down now uh the other factor in relation to this incident, which uh, I speak about in my book, and uh, this unfortunately is part of the airline's contribution to this incident, and that is the captain and the first officer and the second officer had had they did not have a jovial relationship. <laughs> Let me put it that way. Um, there mm-hmm. had been concerns about that crew flying together. And in fact, prior to the incident, the captain had written up the first officer. Uh, the, the report uh, the write-up had to do with the first officer coming to work without his entire uniform. And mm-hmm. supposedly the first officer was going through a divorce, nasty divorce. He had lost a lot of weight, and he was having his uniform altered. Fortunately, that excuse was not to the, uh, 
to the liking of the captain. He wrote the first officer up. The hearing, the hearing of that report was done just a few hours prior to us leaving the uh, LAX. And the check officer who listened to the, uh, who was uh, handling the write-up uh, determined uh, to, or he determined that it would be okay to allow them to fly together. And if you listen to the CVR recording, there are various periods where the crew is not working in harmony. I myself was in the cockpit during the flight, and I personally witnessed this disharmony. So it is my opinion that the information that should have been shared, spoken about between a three-man crew was not shared and done. They were not working to their greatest efficiency. Hmm. And uh, again, since I am not an aviator and I'm not a pilot, I can't determine whether they were, uh, that they should have been flying together or not flying together. Obviously, uh, a lot of people believe they should not have been. So whatever information or what they should have done or could have done, I think uh, was hampered by the fact that you had three men that were not working in harmony. Mm-hmm. Now, on the other end of it, you can tower that unfortunately was dealing with its own situation and problems. The gentleman in the tower had been on duty for 20 hours. Mm-hmm. Now, of course, mm-hmm. this is the other factor that we don't take into conscious thinking. We are raised and we are trained to believe that the airline system and all of its safety mechanisms are there and working to the maximum potential to ensure our safety. Well, that may be true in our country, but it's not true in other companies, other countries, excuse me. The regulations that are mandatory in the United States are not mandatory in other countries. And therefore, this contributes much more greater to the uh, to the problem of, of human human error, human factors. Uh, in fact, uh, in in that regard, I did a presentation in 2001 to uh, uh, here at Honolulu Embry Riddle uh, University, and uh, I worked with a uh, uh, Professor Dr. Mike Miller, who is an expert on uh, aviation human factors, and uh, now Embry Riddle actually does a, a class uh, on uh, on my incident on the on the, the crash of Flight 2605 in relation to to hum, aviation human factors. So uh, yeah, there's a lot of a lot of things that are left up in the air because because of that. Jim Holder. Yeah, I just have another question, uh, Neil. The other, the other thing I have, the other question I have, Eddie, is that you had the, uh, you've listened to the cockpit voice recorder. Uh, was the uh, ATIS, the Automated Terminal Information Service, 
information on there? And if so, what what did it state about the uh, weather and the active runway? Well, again, a lot of this is, you know, um, the Mexicans got a hold of everything first. Uh, and again, they take things and they, they twist it to a certain degree. Uh, now, two, three left is the main runway at, at Mexican airport. There is a portion where Mexican air traffic control does recommend the two three left landing this is about oh i can't i can't think of the actual time where they they say this whatsoever the first indication the very first indication um that the cockpit crew has the runway is closed is at 11.39 of the tape where the tower says, we're ready, you know, we're ready on approach, uh, just seconds from landing, and the tower finally says, Western 2605, advise runway in sight. Okay, do you you have your lights on? 2605, you are to the left of the track. The uh, the cockpit responds just a bit. The tower the tower returns. Advise runway in sight. There is a layer of fog over the field. Now that's the first indication that uh, it isn't a mile and a half visibility. Two six oh five Roger. The tower returns. Two six oh five. Do you have approach lights in sight? Now that's interesting. You have a runway that's closed, but the tower is admitting right here. Do you have approach lights on the left inside? It says, okay, sir, okay. Approach lights are on runway two, three left, but that runway is closed to traffic. That is just seconds before we touch down. Now, if our runway is closed, why do they have their approach lights on? Why is there not an X flashing on each end of the runway? And again, no, I, of course, I, the- I, I, I agree with that. The, but the question was, when the pilots first picked up the ATIS information, what was the information on there? What was the active runway in use on the ATIS? Two, three left. It didn't mention sidestep or anything? Not at all. Not a, not mm. a thing whatsoever. Mm. And again, that was about the time when that came in. That was about the time that uh, that Mexicana was, was landing on that runway. Okay, and, and, and I have just another, one other question. Actually, two. Um, it, it was my understanding from watching your uh, video that um, – there was a NOTAM that the pilots had in their possession prior to takeoff that stated that runway 23 left was closed. Is that correct? Well, again, there was a NOMAD that was, that was issued uh, that determined, that was telling, that told all airmen 
that this runway was going to be worked on uh, for a couple of weeks. Now, again, if you're in the United States, you close the runway, you put the flashing X's, and you, uh, and, and you work on the runway. Uh, in Mexico, they would close the runway whenever they felt they wanted to close it and work on the runway. They can open it back up and have planes land again, and again, they would close it, and this is the way that the work was done over the period of the weeks. There is no information whatsoever that was related to 2605 or the cockpit that states to them, we are about to close the runway. Uh, you, you know, you, you need to use it for navigational purposes. You're going to initiate a sidestep maneuver. None of that whatsoever. It isn't, again, Nothing is mentioned to the cockpit crew until they get to the point of just seconds before touchdown where they mention, okay, that, that runway is, is closed. And, okay, so, uh, and, so what you're stating is that the NOTAM stated basically that 2-3 left might be closed. Is that what it said? Basically, uh, uh, let's see, I got it right here, it's fast. The only note relating to the Mexican City Airport stated uh, runway 5R23 left closed, Mexico. Uh, runway 23 left closed until further notice as per Mexican as per Mexican operations. This was the 19th of October at 7 a.m. That's what was given. That was the, the and again, uh, uh, okay, that, that was the only information given. That was on October 19th. So basically the Mexicans uh, opened it and closed it to their whim. And when they mm-hmm. closed it, just 18 minutes prior to us, no information of that closing was related to the cockpit of 2605. And you said Mexico had landed 18 minutes earlier, didn't you? Yes, sir. Just one one final question. I'll uh, get away. Um, Did you ever find out who ransacked your apartment? Fortunately, when an incident like this happens, uh, a lot of crazies come out of the woodwork, Um, and uh, especially a lot of lawyers. So uh, I assumed it was either someone from the Mexican Federales or I think maybe possibly an investigator for a lawyer who was – who obviously – because, I mean, you know, the, the lawsuit against uh, – for this incident rose to be $351 million. And unfortunately, when an incident like this happens afterwards – it uh, it becomes all about money, and so uh, Eddie, I just Eddie. decided I just decided somebody did it, so it'd be best to get out of town for a while. Eddie, <laughs> so how did, how did, did Western it? Airlines treat you after the uh, after the crash? And you know, what was your uh, relationship uh, with the airlines? And uh, did you work any longer, or just what happened post crash? Well, fortunately. Uh, Western Airlines was a magnificent company. Uh, I, uh, I am honored and proud to have represented them and to have worked for them. 
unfortunately, uh, Mexico was calling the shots. Mexico flexed its political muscle. It basically told the U.S. stay out of the investigation. Uh, this was done primarily because earlier in the year, when uh, earlier that year, when uh, Jimmy Carter visited Mexico and landed up insulting the uh, president of Mexico, uh, a gentleman named Jose Lopez Portillo, um, relations with Mexico and the U.S. were not not good. They had just uh, they had just sealed the deal on a huge natural gas. Uh, agreement. Uh, this was the time when Mexico had discovered all of their wealth in the Gulf and, and the time of Premex and, and so on. And so uh, the United States, you know, during the oil crisis, the United States had wanted to have a good relationship. Under the Freedom of Information Act, I have a letter from the, from the uh, State Department to the NTSB. Uh, when this incident happened, that states to them, when you go down to Mexico, do not look too closely. Let this be a Mexican show. And this was done so that U.S.-Mexican relations would not be, would not be disturbed. Uh, basically, Mexico was a big part of Western Airlines. And uh, Mexico basically told the airline, uh, look, you take the blame no matter what. You know, we realize it was your top pilot, but you take the blame or else you know, your your relationship in Mexico could be jeopardized. Now, it's really in, in, interesting because just a couple of years later, after all of the lawsuits had been settled, Western Airlines was the only American airline that was allowed new routes into Mazatlan, Zihuatanejo, and Puerto Vallarta. That was their reward for, for playing along. And of course, uh, that uh, it, it's politics. It's money. It's it's you know. And this is this was what the situation was. So my relationship with Western, I recognized very quickly that it was Mexico who was calling the shots. Therefore, I had to make sure that I kept a good relationship with the airline. And uh, not only was this the best way to survive, but it also allowed me to have access to uh, possible information that would later on be beneficial in that uh, when I was ready to do to co public. Now, I was in a very deep dilemma psychologically because I loved Western Airlines and for me to go public would have greatly hurt Western Airlines and all of my associates, all of my friends, everybody that worked. But by not telling the truth and keeping silent, I was killing myself. And I was, I was, uh, I was self-destructing slowly. Uh, uh, and as you may recall, in 1988, 8788 uh, Western merged with Delta Airlines. Delta bought Western. Uh, fortunately, I was able to extract from Western a contract that protected me. Therefore, when Delta entered the scene, they uh, they were they had to honor my contract, 
and uh, within a period of time, <clears throat> I uh, I made a financial agreement with Delta, and that's when I left. Hmm. And that was 1988. Wow. Is it my turn? Your turn, Jim Holder. <laughs> well, I was a 727 first officer, 727 captain at Eastern, and I've been into Mexico City many times, day, night, bad weather, clear. When it's clear, you can see a 1,000 miles. When it's bad, you can't see Dilly Squat. I've had to go around on approach where you go around and you lose the runway completely because you're going around a little mountain. And you see it over there, you go around the mountain, you don't see it anymore, now you see it, and that's it. The Dilly is 25 right. Uh, this is the opposite of 3, three two left. Uh, it's a it's a it's a dangerous place, especially in weather. And uh, I've been sitting here listening to y'all, and I have the actual details all in front of me. I pulled them up on the computer about two hours ago, and I see a lot of what uh, uh, Eddie is saying. I'm reading about when the uh, on October the 19th, the notice the airmanization 23 left would be closed until further notice for resurfacing work. Now, my airline experience is that when they open, a, when they close a runway for recircling, and they did it down, I've done that down at Mexico City, and we were cleared to take off, and they had people on the runway. But thank goodness it was day, and we could see them down there. And by the time we saw them, it was foggy. We were able to lift off, and we went across there. And I remember it about 50 Mexicans running to the right and 50 Mexicans running to the left. And we scared the hell out of them, I know. You have a 727 come over your head at about 50 feet. Well, uh, what are we going to do? Well, we got out of here. Let's just go to Atlanta and forget about it. You know? uh, so it is a dangerous place. And, and that was in good weather. That was in good weather. They cleared us to yeah. take off on a runway that they were working on. People were on the runway. And uh, I'm getting a little irritated here. I don't guess you hear this talking about it. But uh, I, I, they, you know, if a, if a runway is closed for resurfacing, and it's been closed on the, six, on the 19th, and this is on the last day, I guess, or sort of it was, uh, you don't open and close and use a runway that's being resurfaced. Let's close it to two hours now, you know, and let things land. That doesn't happen. They close a runway and it's closed for four or five days or maybe a week or whatever. It's not open and closed. Open. That's been my experience. That you just can't do that because you got equipment out there. You've got, you know, it's just it's it's ridiculous to think that that somebody was landing on the left when they'd been working on it. And yeah. then that culminated to open it up again. That doesn't that really make that sense to me. Uh, and don't open, they, they were supposed don't to do a sidestep. I've done sidesteps at Mexico City in both directions. I've done them in L.A. I've done, you know, and of course, I'm sure George and Neil have too. You do a sidestep. But yeah. the weather was, from what I'm reading here and what I've heard Eddie say, the weather does not... <laughs> It don't jive with somebody giving them on, on 32 left. You shoot at 32 left, and then you 600 feet, you sidestep over. And if you don't see the runway on the right at 600 feet, for whatever the reason, you got to go around. Or either you're going to drag a wingtip if you try to run and make a screaming-ass turn and another one back to the left on the runway. It doesn't make sense. I think the guys, they weren't watching what they were doing. Yeah. Well, 
and I that obviously I as I mentioned in my book is could have been a contributing factor to it. It's, it's right. I mean, I've, as all of you know, seasoned aviators, an accident is not one specific thing. It's a, it's an accumulation of things. It's a, it's an accumulations of incidents, of decisions, and so on that all add up. If we had been ten feet higher. When we hit the uh, the dump truck, we never would have hit it. You know, we would have, uh, and you know, I wouldn't be here talking. If to they you were, until... if they were in a going around mood, if they were taking right. off again, if they were barking a landing, yes, you're right. Yes, but that's and so when you're... and so it, it, it's all the indication. But then you look at what at what the Mexicans did, basically. You know, no U.S. investigator was ever allowed on the craft site. No U.S. investigator was ever allowed to talk to the power operator. No U.S. investigator was ever allowed to talk to air traffic, the Mexican air traffic control. They were completely uh, sealed off and not uh, and not allowed to do this. And you know, then I mean, to talk about an extreme, I get abducted from the hospital, and these guys are are beating the crap out of me, trying to get me to sign an affidavit that says I served liquor to the pilots during the flight. You know, give me a break, and all this is happening when people wearing costumes of, of devils and demons and everything running around. It was insanity. It was complete insanity going on. I just want, I just want to get back there. Uh, Jim, I hear a lot of ice or some, somebody's got some kind of drink going here. Uh, George, do you have any questions further? Yeah, um, what what year was your book published, Eddie? Uh, just uh, four years ago, 2018. Okay, that's what I was wondering. All right. Uh, well, <laughs> like most crashes, it's not as simple as one little thing. It's an accumulation of things almost all yeah. the time. Somebody yeah. did this, now, somebody the, did well, that, somebody didn't do it. Now, here, here's the other question I'd like to raise. It's this incident, this Halloween will be 43 years. And mm-hmm. with all the airline disaster shows, all the airline documentaries that are now on all the channels, not one incident ever been the focus of any of those documentaries. The only, the only uh, investigative report which was done was, was the one I participated in, along with Captain Ralph Baxter in 1988, the uh, 2020 episode, What Happened to Flight 2605. That has been the only uh, documentary. And all these years later, uh, the, uh, none of the uh, documentary shows uh, have highlighted this, this incident. Yet, I believe this incident, if you look at it, focus on uh, everything that happened, is just a treasure full of, of safety, of information of, that could be related to, to training departments, to the airlines, so that they could look, they could learn. Uh, I know many airlines have related to the incident when talking about how cockpit crews need to work more in unison. It's used as an example of, of when there is difficulties uh, amongst the cockpit, how it can relate down below. But again, uh, well, it's been the opposite. The, the airlines have ignored this uh, incident. They've ignored uh, all the information that could be that could be taken from it. 
and they just basically don't want to talk about it and and just like the Mexicans just swept it under the swept it under the carpet. You know, it's it's probably one of the incidents where you can say all of the airline systems broke down. It broke down in, it, by the airline. It broke down in the cockpit. It broke down in the air traffic control. It broke down in the tower. And it also definitely broke down in uh, in the type of aid that should be provided for survivors because you know, I landed up in the hands of the federales, which was, uh, which was not a pleasant experience. So, Did you receive any injuries at all, Eddie? Oh yeah, I, I've beaten. I mean, luckily. No, I mean as I, related I, to the accident itself. Yes, no, I'm. I am talking about the accident. Beaten. Yeah, I okay. was. Uh, yeah, the the the, the G force and everything. I uh, I was at position four R on the DC ten in the aft, and I was strapped in tight into my jump seat. Uh, we hit the truck. Uh, we continued on. This is what I recall is, um, is is we hit the truck and then we just kind of lingered for a bit. The, the, the engines didn't come back on. We kind of floated, and I, that's when I noticed the fog. And then uh, I, I noticed to the on my left side, since I am facing aft, which is the right wing, I saw it clip something. There was a spark, and then what it was is our right wing clipped a uh, – a uh, tractor that was on the side of the runway. Now this was significant because that changed the trajectory of the uh, craft 15 degrees. If we had not hit that craft, that that tractor, we were headed right for the main runway. I mean the main terminal building, and there were, I believe. Uh, 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 four 747s all fueled up uh, parked there. But by hitting the tractor with our right wing, it changed our trajectory by 15 degrees and uh, landed up hitting the building in the neighborhood that we did. So we actually averted a greater disaster. Uh, now, uh, after we hit that tractor, that's when I heard the engines come on full blaze and uh, the aircraft just pitched up, and then uh, at that point, uh, as we, uh, I looked to the floor, the floor started cracking open, and, the, and it went right up the wall of the back wall, and uh, the number two engine exploded, and there was this fuel line that went around like a serpent, and that caught fire, and then all that energy shot forward, through the through the cab through the cabin to uh, to the forward uh, from aft to forward, and I was covering myself. I got singed and I got burned, and then uh, once we hit the buildings, there was another explosion forward that came aft, and I saw pieces. I actually I saw body parts coming back. The fire, and then everything just stopped. Just stopped. And uh, when I looked, and, and of course, jet fuel, jet fuel everywhere. But when I was assessing myself, I was literally still strapped to the back of the jump seat. The seat was gone. The floor was gone. So I had strapped to the backboard of the jump seat, and I was lying on tarmac. And I, was, I could see we... We had hit a building because there was concrete everywhere. 
and uh, that's when I realized, uh, okay, I got to get out of here. And then there was fire, just fire everywhere. And uh, and then I real I got really upset because I thought, my God, I have survived, but now I'm trapped. I'm gonna I'm gonna burn alive. And uh, that's mm-hmm. when I decided to uh, start digging, start digging, digging. And then, you know, I saw an opening, and then there was a there was a werewolf, a witch, and a goblin running around screaming, and everybody's screaming. <laughs> and you, the building that you hit was the Eastern Airlines building, wasn't it? You came to rest yes, with the airplane? Yeah. yeah, that was part of it. Yeah, the hangar that was there and then the concrete building next to it. Yeah, that was. Yeah, yeah right. I think two Eastern employees were killed in that building, too. Yes, they were. Yeah, that is that's correct. I have one other question for Eddie, Neil. Um, Eddie, when your apartment was ransacked, I presume that was in L.A., uh, did, did yes. you call the police? Did they investigate that? No, and I'll tell you why. Obviously, because of what I had gone through and, and the initial aspects of PTSD, um, which I was unaware of at that time, because at that time it was only related to the Vietnam deaths at the time. It was not as well accepted as it is today. Um, I didn't because, first of all, um, you obviously have a massive surge of paranoia. And number two, I had a complete mistrust of the institutions we're supposed to trust in. In other words, the Mexican, it was obvious to me the Mexicans had their goal. It was obvious to me the U.S. government had its goal. And it was obvious to me that the airline had its goal. And I felt very much vulnerable and very much uh, I could be a liability if perceived. And therefore, I did not want to have to try to trust other institutions. I, I recognized that my survival depended on me. And again, this is where I thank my training department with Western Airlines, uh, Barbie Atherton and, and, and Mary Jensen and all the other ones of that. Because, you know, I remember my instructor telling me with her voice during training, she said, you, you must survive so that others might have the chance of living. And therefore, mm. you know, I, it, it became evident to me that the survival journey was still continuing. It, it, it doesn't end just after the crash. The crash is actually just the beginning. I had to survive for many, many years with the cover-up of this incident, with the lies of this incident, with listening to mothers crying. I went to 10 funerals in, in, in four days. There is nothing. I would rather go through the crash again than have to look at the faces of the mothers of my crew that that were deceased. Mm -hmm. And so the the survivor mode continues. And so you have a mistrust of the powers that be. So, no, I didn't report it. And I could have easily done it because my my brother is a retired LAPD detective. So he was uh, a detective with LAPD. And I just decided to get out of town. And fortunately, by the grace of God, it led me to my beautiful Garden Island, which I, I live in now, which uh, I am very grateful that I uh, have the opportunity to not live, just live here, but also the opportunity to heal here. 
and to, well, well, uh, I have one other them. question. Did, did, yes, you ever, did you ever go to uh, the NTSB chairman? I don't know who it happened to be at the time. I have a pretty good idea. But did you ever ask them why they were not allowed to participate in the investigation, in the crash investigation? Because under, under ICAO rules, they are allowed to participate. Yes, but but you have you have uh, well, of course. Again, mentioning that you have uh, in the agreement, uh, you have uh, not only are they uh, able to agree on it, but you have the actual the people running the the uh, the investigation is the Servicio de la Navegación and in El Espacio Audio Mexicano. They're the Mexican equivalent of, uh, of the uh, FAA. And those that, were, that should have been allowed to participate are the National Transportation Safety Board, the Federal Aviation Administration, Western Airlines, General Electric Company, the makers of the engines, McDonnell Douglas, Association of Flight Attendant, Airline Pilots Association. But the reality of once you get down there and do it, uh, you know, every one of them had a Mexican uh, person who was in charge, and they were only going to allow you to see what they wanted to see. And what, what are you going to do? Are you going to go protest? Obviously, the United States uh, had something of value in this deal. They had the big natural gas deal, which had just been recently agreed upon. Obviously, Western Airlines had something in here. That's their future in the Mexico uh, so whether or not uh, they should have been allowed or the agreement says they should have been allowed is quite different than them being allowed. I understand that yeah. fully, but my question was, did you ever question the NTSB as to why they allowed that to take place? I actually, uh, several years later, went to Washington. I visited the National Transportation Safety Board and the offices of the FAA, and the people, I would say this was probably nine years after the accident, and uh, they were completely, had no idea of really to a great extent what I was talking about. There was uh, no information they had. The only thing they had was the official Mexican report, and uh, no one was held to be accountable whatsoever. Um, now, if, if you want my opinion, uh, and I see this in the book, I'll tell you how, the, how they got away with it. The way they got away with all of this is that six days after this accident was the start of the Iran hostage situation. All of us remember for over 400 days, the Iranian guard held U.S. hostages in the uh, U.S. embassy in, uh, in, in Iran. So all of the world's attention was focused on Iran. The United States was focused on possibly going to war with Iran. Uh, so anyone interested in digging deeper into this accident drown out of Mexico City. The media left Mexico City. The accident was no longer the, uh, the important focus of the media. Now we had this incredible situation going on in Iran 
that could possibly lead to a great war. So this allowed the Mexican government and the airline and the U.S. government to quickly tidy up anything that was left over from this accident, sweep it under the carpet, declare it to be pilot error, and everybody would forget. Well, you know, obviously ALPA, the Airline Pilots Association, did not forget because they came up with the uh, the only the only really decent report on the on the accident, and also myself, I didn't forget. And uh, you know, but being an individual, I had to make sure and I had to be very careful uh, that I uh, I I uh, how I approached this. And so, therefore, that, in my opinion, that is what allowed the powers to be to simply sweep this away and let everybody forget about it. And after the Iran hostage situation was finished, after over 400 days, nobody remembered the, the Western Airlines crash. Oh, well. Before How do we... I go about buying your book, Eddie? I'm sorry? <laughs> I'd like to buy your book. This is Jim, Jim Holder. Jim, my friend, thank you. I just go to jumpseat2605.com, and that's in connection. That's related with Amazon, and it's in print or it's in Kindle, uh, either one. And I appreciate anyone who, who purchases my book. I, I, uh, I am grateful for the support and uh, grateful for, uh, for the opportunity to speak on this and you know for me I was 27 years old when this accident happened all of the flight attendants that perished were younger than me there was one flight attendant that uh, was 20 years old three months with the company uh, five of the flight attendants were under their three month were under their six month probation so that means well, here again, I'm sure Brenda's going to be uh, touched by this, you know, in a, in, in a negative way because it's really outrageous. Uh, so basically, their families didn't have any legal re- recourse whatsoever because uh, they uh, those 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 deceased flight attendants were still under under their probation. Uh, and again, this is you know you've got family members rightfully suing. Uh, an airline or whoever is at fault for the loss of their loved one, but flight attendants are employees. And in this particular case, uh, their only legal option was to, uh, and we obviously know what mm-hmm. that is. I mean, it, it, it's so there, you know, it's, it's unfortunate. These are wonderful young people just, uh, you know, the regular crew, it was the last flight of the month. The regular crew for that flight had gone uh, ineligible uh, by five minutes, by five minutes. Therefore, the entire cabin crew was a replacement crew uh, uh-huh. on reserve, young people who were brilliant, beautiful, and, and their life snuffed out at that, at that early age. And uh, some of the families took uh, took the case all the way to the United States, uh, excuse me, to the California Supreme Court, trying to get uh, the opportunity for a decent 
decent settlement, but the California Supreme Court uh, continued to agree that uh, their only recourse would be workman's compensation. Now, as far as how I benefited financially is uh, the bottom line is I had the, I had the CVR recording. And I had it there, and so basically it was. Uh, I had, a, I had a chip. I had a, chi- I, you know, I had a seat at the poker game, and I had the chips by which to play. If I didn't have, a, if I hadn't had that and other, and other information, I would have been uh, left in the dark. Also, maybe that's what they were after ransacking your apartment there in L.A. That may, and, and that may, and yeah, that may be, and that may be true. I, I don't know. Yeah. I don't know, but uh, you know, well, it's, Eddie, uh, didn't it? Know, um, sorry, the flight attendants' families. I believe I read this. Were given a free pass to travel oh. every year. And when Delta took over, they cut that. That is true. Western Airlines, as, as a token, you believe that? Uh, gave, mm. gave the families uh, of the deceased crew one ticket a year by which to travel. Uh, and when the merger occurred, uh, Delta revoked that privilege. Oh, my God. I know. And, and well. I must say, and I've, I've said it before, that it, there's a history that shows that when a flight attendant survives a, a crash, a bad accident, they are treated like a dirty little secret by the airlines. Mm. They don't want them. Yeah. They're afraid they're going to say something or do something. And it's just sad because the dedication yeah. of those flight attendants, honestly, <laughs> you just don't know unless you've been there. And uh, uh, well, well, horrendous. if you look, if you look at my book, uh, I, I personally, as you know, was put in what I required as limbo. Um, um, basically, from for six years, I was uh, an employee of Western Airlines. I was. Uh, they took me off the flight line. I was uh, given the title uh, assistant to the CEO. I had all my benefits, all my pay. And they told me just don't come to work for almost six years. I was I was in limbo. I traveled the world. I went back to school and I, I uh, at uh, Loyola Marymount University. Uh, uh, Western Airlines slipped the bill on that, but basically I was uh, I was free to uh, I was just placed as I said placed in limbo, and uh, that was my situation up until. Uh, up until I made my financial settlement with Delta. Well, and then uh, Eddie, may, sorry, may I say ahead, one Brad. more thing? Sure. Um, the treatment for flight attendants listening, the treatment that you got—it's not shouldn't be really called treatment. It's more of a reaction that you got when you went back on the line. I know Sandy Pearl went through this too. It's like you're the elephant in the room. The rest of the crew doesn't know how to deal with you. Yeah. Some are afraid of you. Uh, some are afraid to say anything. You experienced that, didn't you, Eddie? Oh, big time. Yeah, big time. It's, uh, yeah. It's, it was not. It was not a, a pleasant uh, situation. And uh, uh, you know, it, I went through very heavy duty psychological problems, mental problems. Fortunately for me, um, I've had. Uh, Good physicians. Uh, my first doctor, Dr. Joseph Ramblejack, was head of psychiatrics at UCLA Veterans Hospital. So 
So uh, he was the most noted uh, individual with regard to PTSD back then. And uh, so luckily that, and I also had the guidance of, uh, after several years, uh, a gentleman named uh, Larry Lee, who became the the uh, CEO of Western Airlines in its last few days, um, <clears throat> who made sure that um, that my needs were taken care of. And uh, yeah. so it's, it's fortunate that, yeah, in all the tragedy, there were individuals that stepped forward and uh, became not just friends but mentors. And uh, honestly, I, I thank them because they're the ones – they're the ones, and all the all the strength of my fellow associates. They're the ones that got. Like people ask me, well, where did you find the strength to get through this? I, I didn't. I didn't have the strength. It was the love and the support I had from fellow flight attendants, from other crew members, from people in the in the company who who got me one day at a time. One day at a, in fact, at one period, I think in the book, it goes ten minutes at a time. Ten minutes at a time. If you can only make it ten, ten minutes at a time, make it ten minutes at a time. But, uh, yeah. you know, I wasn't going to uh, give in to the negative aspect. And, of course, every year, Halloween became incredibly difficult, very much difficult. So that was usually my, my worst time on it. But uh, in Eddie, Spanish, we or- have a word. We have a word. It's called travieso. Travieso is like a stubborn little pain in the rear. And uh, that's kind of, I guess, what I am. I just wasn't going to give in to it because uh, I'm just stubborn. Well, well, Eddie, before we sign off, we have just a few minutes left. I want to recognize the crew members on Flight 2605, the front-end crew, mm-hmm. Captain Charles Gilbert, First Officer Ernst Reichel, I believe it's pronounced, Second Officer Dan Walsh, and the flight attendants were Larry Roundtree, Sharon Smith, Flight Attendant Regina Tovar, Flight Attendant Kathleen Miller, Flight Attendant Rob Pond, Flight Attendant Sagano Haley, Flight Attendant Vicki Dezita, and Flight Attendant John Stockwell. Uh, pardon me if I mispronounced any of those names, but I did want to mention uh, the crew on Flight 2605 that perished. And I also just Thank want you. to add uh, also the name of of, uh, of, uh, of Chip Richards. Chip Richards is my, my fellow flight attendant who survived. He uh, went on to have a very successful career with Delta, and uh, I'm I'm blessed to have uh, him as a brother, and uh, I always wish him the best. So. Very, very good. I appreciate all of you guys uh, asking the great questions, and Eddie, uh, very, very interesting. Thank you so much for being with us today, and and um, uh, aloha and all of that. I miss Hawaii because, as I mentioned to you on the phone, I was out there for a brief period of time at a little airline. I thought uh, that I was in paradise, and uh, everything would uh, remain that way, but as it turned out, the airline went out of business underfunded. So, uh, as often happens to those that start new airlines. But uh, appreciate uh, you being with us today. Well, thank you so Thank you, Eddie. I, uh, thank you yes, so much. Yes, Jim. Mm. I also, yes. again, would like to mention my book, Jump Seat, A Tale of Twisted Fate. Uh, you can get it at jumpseat2605.com or Amazon Books. 
And also my email is on that website. Anyone that would like to email me and ask questions, I'd be happy to, 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 to answer. And I'm also on public availability on Facebook, Eduardo Valencia. Thank you. Uh, Jim, you had a fi- comment uh, that you wanted to make about Yes, uh, I just wanted to let everybody know about uh, the passing of our, our guest. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm having a blank spot all of a sudden. Conway? Was it Conway? Okay. Bill, no, Bill Kennedy. Kennedy, Bill Kennedy. Kennedy. He used to call in, lived up North Georgia, and he used to call in at a radio show. He died uh, Wednesday, age 80. Three, I think. Yes, he. Uh, yeah, that's right. That he hasn't been with us on the last few shows. So I, know, I wondered what he was, and I'm going yeah. to uh, send an email death notice out to all the people on my EL info list today, right now, as a matter of fact. And also, uh, we have Mike Scott. That uh, uh, George, do you have a, any kind of report on Mike's condition? Uh, no, Neil. Other than what you already know, I know nothing else. Okay. Uh, he's in a hospital. It's not hospice as of this uh, as of this day. I believe uh, that um, he's still receiving treatments, but he has cancer and is spread throughout his body. And so, he is or he is not in hospice? He, no, not, early not, he not, is? not. I talked to a, a lady friend of uh, Mike, and he's still in the hospital. That was as of three days ago. In so hospital. it's, yeah, in the hospital, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, okay. Okay, okay. Thank you so much again. Uh, next week we hope to have uh, Sandy Pearl. Uh, Brenda, can you make a, a brief comment about uh, Sandy? She's agreed to come on with us, so. Yes, yes. Sandy um, had written her own book, but it's out of print, and there's a, uh, a problem getting hold of the uh, copyright to it because the company that had it has gone out of business. But it, it was called, I mean, if it's a secondhand bookstore, Am I Alive? And she was in uh, the surviving flight attendant, aft flight attendant, it was two, and the, the forward survived as well. Um, she was on flight 242, southern flight 242, that DC-9 that lost both engines in a horrific hailstorm and had to put down on a highway through the town of New Hope, Georgia. And I mm-hmm. think that was 1972. It could be 77. Boy, I've got a mental I, I, thing. I remember that one well because I was I remember that day. And that was a horrible, yeah. horrible storm. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yes. Yes, yeah. it was. And Sandy is uh, <laughs> Sandy's lovely. <laughs> she kills me. She's got, she's got that southern spunk. You know, she was back behind the two labs, right? That's where her her uh, jump seat was. She said to me, "I wasn't going to dive up between those two shitters." Still, I think she might be listening, and she'll be laughing. She'll be uh, raising a glass to me. I had the flight attendant that was on uh, board uh, flight 66 going into Kennedy, and she was my flight attendant, and I didn't know. I was up there on temporary duty. I had no knowledge as to anyone uh, on the airplane. I hadn't met any of them, but uh, I was a captain on the 727, and she came up. She was a senior flight attendant, and she asked me if if there was anything that uh, she could uh, uh, do or any instructions from me. 
And uh, just jokingly, I said, uh, no, just what your normal responsibilities activities are. Uh, and uh, I said, oh, by the way, there is one thing. If we ditch, get the liquor kit and get in the raft with me. And I had no idea who she was. I had no idea. And, she was and when she left the flight deck, the co-pilot turned around and looked at me, and he said, you know who that was? I said, yeah, she's senior flight attendant. <laughs> she said, he said, uh, no, she was a flight attendant uh, that was on 66 and survived. And she told me later oh, on that blue water saved her. <laughs> blue water wow. saved her. <laughs> well, wow. uh, Eddie, uh, you need to join the Silverliners before we close out. I want to I want to get a confirmed uh, confirmed acknowledgement that you received a, a, a I, invitation I, to I join the Silverliners. I have received the the, uh, the the paperwork, and I'm I'm going to be taking care of that immediately. I also Good. would like to thank anybody who comes to visit the island of Kauai. Just uh, you're welcome to come, and and I'd like to say hello and have coffee with you. And uh, this is a beautiful wow. beautiful place. I'm on my way. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I wish. Well. Well, we play. We normally play Merle Haggard to get us out of here. So I'm going to let you listen to a little "Silver Wings" by Merle Haggard. This is our sign-off bumper music, and thank you again, Eddie. And come back and visit with us on the radio show anytime you want to. You know where we are and how to get to us. Thank you so much. I'm very grateful for you having me. Thank you. Thank you, Eddie. Thank you, Eddie. Thank you, everybody. Yeah, nice to hear you. Silver wings shining in the sunlight, roaring engines headed somewhere in flight. They're taking you away, leaving me Don't leave me, I cry Don't take that airplane ride But you locked me out of your mind And left me standing here behind Silver wings Shining in the sun Somewhere in flight They're taking you away Leaving me lonely Silver wings Slowly fading out of sight Silver wings, 
shining in the sunlight. Very good show. Very good. Yeah, thank you. You take care, and we'll see you next week. All right. With Sandy, I hope. Yep. All right. Take care. (laughs) Bye-bye. Okay. You too. Bye-bye.